A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian politician about how they live out their faith in the mucky business of politics. You might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and yes, you'd be very right. But then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think Christians should be involved in politics and certainly praying for their brothers and sisters who are directly involved in an informed way. Today, we are talking about what's next for Scotland. Our guest is right at the centre of Scottish politics, and he's a Christian, Murdo Fraser, MSP. He is the Scottish Conservatives finance spokesperson and the former deputy leader. And we'll be talking to him about his Christian faith and the future of the United Kingdom and Scotland's place within it. But before we speak to Murdo, Cara Bentley has a roundup of some of the news this week. Well, the elections have thrown up a number of questions. In Scotland, with the Scottish National Party getting 64 seats, one seat short of an overall majority, how and when will they ask for an independence referendum? More importantly, will Boris Johnson simply refuse to give one, even if they have the support of the eight Green MSPs as well? And if so, what will happen then? In England, generally Labour did poorly, although they did keep many of their mayors. But Labour lost control of eight councils, while the Conservatives gained 13, which has caused many in the party to wonder why. Is it policy? Is it personality? Or is it simply down to the phrase, the proof is in the pudding, with the government having helped people through the pandemic and Labour not having been in national government for over 10 years? In Wales, though, all went well for the Labour First Minister, Mark Drakeford, who increased his personal vote share, which begs the question why Welsh Labour are seen as so different from the rest of Labour. Now that the Conservatives have a popularity boost, though, there is pressure for them to actually deliver. Political parties and the public are now debating the government's plan for the next year, which has been set out in the Queen's speech, to see if it will serve the people who voted Conservative last week. Tim, what do you make of the election results, first of all? And obviously, it's a very public way to lose your job. So how should Christians respond to it? Well, indeed, it's all over by the shouting, but there is rather a lot of shouting. Last Thursday's elections took until Monday to finish counting, and so we now know that, on the whole, this was a good election to be in office. In Scotland, the incumbent SNP government did well. In Wales, the incumbent Labour Party did well. And across much of England, the incumbent Conservatives did well. So if you want my analysis of what happened, and I'm about to give it you whether you want it or not, the main story in town is the pandemic. The answer to the pandemic is the vaccine. The rollout of the vaccine is going pretty well. So the party of government in whichever corner of the UK you live is the one getting the credit. That's not the only explanation for the results, but I do think it's a major factor. But you're right, Cara, elections can be a brutal business, especially if you lose. This week, hundreds of people who were councillors, along with some who were members of the Scottish Parliament or the Welsh Senate and the London Assembly, are having to come to terms with the fact that they have now lost those roles. In addition, Thousands of people stood for election as challengers, but were not successful this time. A close friend of mine who lost his seat in Parliament a few years ago said that the worst thing about the defeat was that he'd lost his identity. Being the local MP was who he was. It defined him. Coping with that was even harder than the challenge of finding a new way of making a living, which was hard enough in itself. Politicians don't elicit that much sympathy. It's thought that we're basically a tribe of self-serving, dishonest charlatans who just want power for its own sake and aren't all that interested in caring for their constituents. 
There are some who fit that bill, but plenty more of all parties that really don't. And this is a time where the spotlight is on candidates like never before. One wrong tweet and you're finished. And even if you haven't done anything wrong, the opposition can destroy your reputation with a distorted but clever attack on your character. Never does politics feel more like a mucky business than at election time. So how should Christian politicians behave? Well, if you win, have a care for those who lost. Show kindness and concern towards them in the things you do and say publicly and privately. If you lose, seek to do so with grace. Take any bitterness to the Lord and show love and gentleness to those who have won. All of us will be wise to remember that every set of election results, every new administration, every defeat, every victory, they are all temporary. They will all end up in dust while God's kingdom lasts forever. Understanding this will help us to cope better with the heartbreak of defeat and instill some humility and perspective into the hearts of those who win. And what about the vast majority of Christians who aren't directly involved in politics? Well, for one thing, we should not disdain or mock those who lose. Psalm 34 verse 18 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. So should we be. Uphold in prayer and in act of kindness those who grieve following defeat. Maybe we should seek them out in order to do so. And for those who have been elected, we're encouraged to pray for all who are in authority. So let's pray for wisdom for the winners and that the Lord will sustain and strengthen those who hold office. So as the post-election shouting continues, let us be those who remember that behind the bluster, politicians are human beings. And that as Christians, we need to offer them dignity and compassion in defeat and in victory. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. This week on the show, our guest is Murdo Fraser, the Conservative member of the Scottish Parliament for Mid-Scotland and Fife and the party's finance spokesperson. He first joined Holyrood in 2001 in a way that is somewhat unique. And in the elections last week, Murdo was re-elected as a regionalist MSP, meaning he's one of the 31 Scottish Conservative MSPs who are trying to stop Nicola Sturgeon asking for another referendum on Scottish independence. But before we get into all that, I want to get to know a bit about how he came to faith. Murdo, it's a delight to have you on the programme. Good morning. Good morning, Tim. Thanks for having me. You're very, very welcome. So look, tell me a little bit about your upbringing in a Christian home. How did that manifest itself for you? So I, I grew up in a in a Christian home in the Highlands in Scotland. My uh, my my, fa my family, my parents were were churchgoers, so we were at, we had prayer at home, we had Bible reading at home, and that had a very significant influence on me uh, growing up because faith was just part of family life. It was a very important part of family life, and it was a very important part of the the circles that my parents moved in. And it was probably uh, in my early adulthood that I came to uh, a personal faith not really as a, a blinding light, but as a, as a, as a, pro, a, a process, a, a natural progression from, from my upbringing when I came to you know, a mature and, and personal faith um, in the Lord. And I have pursued that ever since and, and try and bring my own family up in that same atmosphere as, as much as I can. Was there ever a time, Murdo, that you pushed against it or resisted, do you remember, as a young person? Yeah, and I think everybody does that. And I think, you know, as a, as a teenager, you know, you push back against the restrictions. You want to get out in the world and, uh, and, and challenge the norms that you've been brought up with. But I think having that upbringing, um, having that, that, that grounding in faith and spirituality actually is very important. And I often reflect, you know, with my own, with my own children that um, I don't know what, what way they will go 
in life, what choices they will make. But what all I can do as, as a parent is make sure they get that grounding too. So even if they push back and drift away themselves at some point in future, having had that, that grounding, they might well come back to, to, to faith. Well, that's very encouraging and great wisdom for many Christian parents listening along, me, me included. Now, you left university, you ended up going into the law, and you were also interested in politics at university as well, but didn't choose to go into politics as a career st- straight away. So tell me a little bit about how you ended up in the Scottish Parliament. Well, I got interested in politics, really, um, as a student. I remember, actually, I was still at school at the time of the, the Falklands War, which folks of our generation will remember. Mm. Uh, now I have to explain to, to young people what the Falklands War was, which I find very disturbing because it seems to me only happened yesterday. Um, but I'm being very impressed with the leadership of, of Margaret Thatcher at that time. So I guess that's part of what made me a Conservative. And when I went to university, I found myself surrounded by people mostly from much better off backgrounds than me, who were very anti-conservative. So it was sort of a reaction to that, that uh, I, I decided to, to become a bit more political and got involved in the, in the uh, young conservative uh, movement. But um, didn't want to be one of these people who uh, just did politics all their lives. I thought it was important to have a, a proper career. So I, I went off to uh, be a lawyer, which I did for, for quite a number of years. And then when the Scottish Parliament was set up, and we were looking, the party was looking for people to put themselves forward. I put myself forward uh, with, with, with you know, reasonable expectation I might you know, get in. And we have, a, we have a list system for the Scottish Parliament. And I was uh, number four on the list for um, Mid-Scotland and Fife. And um, in the first Scottish Parliament election, uh, we had the first three elected. So I just missed out. And that was, that was a very um, frustrating and dispiriting experience because I felt called to you know, come forward into, into politics and left me questioning whether that calling was right, whether I should be looking to do something else uh, with my life. And then something quite extraordinary happened because two years on in 2001, one of the uh, Conservative MSPs for the region who had been elected uh, decided that he was going to step down due to, due to ill health quite unexpectedly. And then in essence, I was sitting in my law office one afternoon in August um, and the phone rang and there was a journalist on the phone asking me to comment on the fact that I was now a member of the Scottish Parliament, which came as you know, quite a surprise, as you can imagine. But this is what happened. And uh, it was an unprecedented event because that had never happened before mm. um, where a list member had resigned and there is no by-election. Mm. What happens is the next person on the list automatically gets their seat and that person was me so um, as you can imagine that was a, a quite an exciting uh, and uh, quite shocking <laughs> set of developments and I've been very fortunate to have been in the um, Scottish Parliament ever since and re-elected on a number of occasions. In- including last Thursday. And, including um, last Thursday. Yeah. But of course that is an amazing um, story really I guess for, for you that obviously was totally unexpected. You'd run for Parliament in 99. This was, what, 2001. And you were getting about your your normal working life. And the phone call comes from, like you say, journalists, not even anybody from the Parliament or from the party itself. Although that was totally unexpected, um, were you in any way ready for it? Had you been praying about uh, your ongoing political career, perhaps standing again next time? Was this something that you had spent time talking to people at church about? 
was there any sense in which you thought this was God's direct calling? Yeah, I, th I think at that point, I really was looking for, for guidance. I wasn't sure what I was going to do because I was getting to a point in my career in the law where decisions were going to have to be made. Did I stick with that or did I you know, try again to stand for, for parliament? And people who have been in politics know what that challenge is like when you're trying to juggle a, a career with, with political ambition. So, you know, I, and it really wasn't clear to me what the right path was. Should I, should I have another go at politics? Should I just give up these mm. ambitions and that interest? And I mean, looking back on that period, what really strikes me is how uh, providential the timing of that was, because it was an answer to a question I was wrestling with, an answer in the most unexpected of ways. And it was almost like the father saying, um, you know, this, this will not happen by your efforts. It will happen, you know, according to my timing. And, um, you know, that, that message really came home, mm. you know, very powerfully to me that this, this was the father's doing and not mine. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking with Murdo Fraser, the MSP for Mid-Scotland and Fife and the Scottish Conservatives finance spokesperson. Well, having been first elected uh, in that surprising way back in 2001, Murdo, uh, the elections last Thursday saw the SNP returned again as the largest party. What do you think the new balance of the Scottish Parliament means for the future of Scotland? Well, the first thing to say is, is the new balance of the Scottish Parliament is virtually identical to the, the last one. So we have an SNP uh, minority government, we expect them to be. Uh, we have the Green Party holding the balance of power, and we have uh, the three pro-union parties all representing a substantial minority bloc. And the Scottish Conservatives, which I'm a member of, had our best ever election results uh, on uh, Thursday. We increased our vote substantially uh, and retained our 31 uh, seats. So uh, the real question, of course, everybody wants to talk about is what does this mm. mean for another independence referendum? The SNP have been very quick out of the blocks claiming that this is a mandate for independence. And we would question that because, of course, they didn't win a majority. And, and crucially, they didn't win a majority of the votes actually cast in this election because most people who voted on Thursday voted for parties opposed to another independence referendum. And of course, the Scottish Parliament does not actually have the legal power to hold an independence referendum. That would have to be done as it was done in 2014 by Westminster agreeing to give the Parliament, uh, the Scottish Parliament, the necessary powers. And I think that the lack of a SNP majority and the lack of a majority of votes for that to happen will make it very difficult for the SNP to try and win that argument that the Scottish people now want another independence referendum, particularly in the context of COVID recovery and all the other issues that need to be dealt with, at least in the short term. Of course, and I suppose part of Nicola Sturgeon's approach will be to uh, demand a referendum, say that there has been a, a, a mandate for there to be another one. And then the danger is, of course, that the Westminster Parliament objects and that's presented as you know the UK government telling Scotland what to do and that may even fester uh, separatist independent uh, sentiment even more than is the case already so it's a tricky balance so what's your advice to Boris Johnson in how he and the rest of the government and indeed the rest of the Westminster Parliament should handle this? 
We have already seen in the tone of some of the response comments from uh, Michael Gove in the, in the UK government that the, the tone is not to say, no, you're not getting your referendum ever. The tone is very much to say, now is not the time. An actual fact, I think that is in tune with quite a substantial majority of the Scottish population, not just the roughly half who voted against pro-independence parties, but even more than that, there are people who support independence who don't actually believe that having a referendum in the next three to four years is the right time to do that. So I think the nuanced position saying, not never, but not now, is the right approach to take. Obviously, there's something about the debate about uh, independence that makes it all the more passionate. You know, if we've got two Christian politicians, for example, who disagree about what the tax rate should be by a penny either way, that's not going to be that heated. But a disagreement over the future of your country, whether it's an independent country or part of the United Kingdom, that can be and has proven to be very divisive and, uh, and very painful for many, many people. What's it like for you as a, a Christian um, when you are arguing for the preservation of the union up against a fellow Christian like Kate Forbes, for instance, uh, your opposite number on finance, who thinks absolutely the opposite? How do and how should Christians handle a debate on such a uh, passionate and divisive issue? Well, first of all, Tim, I mean, you're absolutely right about the passion. Uh, we had that in spades in 2014 in the independence referendum, as you, as you will remember, too. Uh, and it was for many people in Scotland quite an unpleasant time, a very divisive time. There were friendships that broke up. There were families who were divided. Um, some people felt very uncomfortable in communities uh, throughout, throughout Scotland because of the division. And, of course, the rest of the UK saw something similar, but maybe not quite as extreme in relation to Brexit, where even now, you know, we're, we still see the wounds from the, the Brexit debate um, unhealed with the divisions between Remainers and Leavers still still, still evident, what, you know, four or five years on from, from that referendum. Mm. So it has potential to be really divisive. And this is where I think, you know, Christians in politics have a particular role to play, leadership role to play in ensuring that the tone of the debate is gracious and rational. Mm. Now, at the time of the last independence referendum, along with a, an SNP, uh, MSP, John Mason, um, I did a, a roadshow around uh, quite a number of churches in Scotland. I think we did 12 or 13 altogether. And essentially, we, we marketed ourselves as uh, a debate team to discuss independence and did a, a, you know, a number of gatherings. I think overall, we spoke to about 2,000 people. Uh, so well-attended gatherings all across the country, presenting the arguments from a Christian perspective, not arguing that a Christian should be for independence or anti-independence, but trying to conduct the debate in a tone of mutual respect and good grace. And I think that was very well received by people. And I think that sets a model as to how Christians should be able to disagree graciously on issues that we feel very importantly and very passionately about, but we can do that respecting each other's views and not descending into some of the nastiness that we, we saw in 2014 uh, that we still see around independence and indeed that we still see around Brexit. Yeah, that, that is a great example that you and John uh, 
set. I suppose when it comes to an election, if we don't do well, there's always another one in four or five years' time or across the UK every two years at the moment, it would appear. Uh, but what we do know is that a referendum on the future of Scotland, you know, potentially is forever um, the outcome. And so you understand why people feel such um, strength in the views that they hold and why the tone can end up escalating into something really quite unpleasant. Um, that's obviously something which is a problem for Christians in Scotland. But I'd be interested just to hear finally really what your thoughts are, what your advice is for Christians outside of Scotland uh, listening to this programme as to how they should pray about Scotland's future and this debate and how they should think about this thing. Sure. I mean, again, um, I mean, just picking up what you said, Tim, uh, the difficulty here is, is this is all surrounded by issues of identity. You know, there are people who have been brought up in families believing all their lives that Scotland should be an independent country. And, you know, there are some individuals, this is true on both sides, actually, mm -hmm. who know uh, amount of rational argument and debate is ever going to convince them to change their view. And that, that has an influence on the tone of the debate. So mm. I suppose the first thing to pray for would be that we avoid division, we avoid aggression, that the debate is conducted in a, in a respectful and gracious tone, that nobody feels upset or intimidated by the debate we're having. And I think we should, I'd also ask for prayer, you know, for all politicians, in Scotland, that they would be guided for, you know, what is the best for um, a Scotland's future, and that they wouldn't necessarily put their own selfish starting point as being the uh, factor that, that guides their, their choices, that they, they look uh, carefully and rationally at what is uh, in the best interest of the country and what the facts of the matter are. And, you know, we all try and take some of the heat and the hysteria out of this debate, I think I think all these things would be very welcome. And and the last thing I would say is, you know, while these issues are hugely important uh, to people, ultimately, in you know the, the presence of a sovereign God, you know, whether Scotland remains in the United Kingdom or, for that matter, whether the United Kingdom is part of Europe, are you know in the millennia of history and eternity, actually quite irrelevant issues. Mm. What's much more important is how we build God's kingdom here on earth. And I think we all politicians need to remember that's really what's important and what needs to be focused on. Well, Murdo, that is a perfect way to come to our end and wonderful advice, not just for those of us who care uh, deeply about what happens to Scotland and in Scotland, but who have uh, any involvement in politics at all to remember to hold these things lightly and to balance them against the eternal. Thanks ever so much, Murdo. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Thanks very much, Tim. Well, this is the part of the show where you have the chance to ask me anything about being a Christian in politics. It could be ethical, it could be political, dare I say it, it could even be personal. And this week, we've got a question from Adam in Cardiff. Hi, Tim. How do you draw the line between legislating on personal and public morality? You said last week that you wouldn't impose Christian morals, but that the divide isn't always clear. So how do you think through what is public and what is private? Adam, I think you're right. The divide isn't always clear. Uh, I guess I've taken the view that, as I said last week, I don't think there's any merit in Christians legislating to make people who are not Christians have to live as though they were. 
And so imposing Christian morals on the greater public, I don't think is something that we're necessarily called to do. And very often, therefore, the divide is between what counts as personal morality and public morality. You legislate on the latter, you allow people to make their own choices with the former. That gives you a broad guide. If I was going to get a little bit more detailed, perhaps I'd say that those things that are self-regarding, um, where you make a, a moral choice that you know Christians might say the Bible teaches against, um, nevertheless, it's a self-regarding choice. Um, then again, it's not our right to intrude into a person's um, right, if you like, to make that kind of a choice. But of course, as Christians, we believe we're all interconnected. Nobody is a solitary, uh, unimportant individual. We all have an impact upon the lives of others. And that just goes back to what you said in your question, Adam, that this is a grey area. Um, there can be very many temptations, uh, particularly the desire to people please, which I think is the greatest temptation that politicians uh, and Christian politicians face, that might mean that our judgment isn't as wise as it should be on these things. But it's also right to say that if there are grey areas there, it's kind of a reminder why it's it's okay for Christians like Murdo Fraser and I, who disagree on many things, and nevertheless to be brothers in Christ, that it's okay to make different choices, but we should seek to be humble before the Lord as we reach those decisions in the first place. If you've got a question you'd like me to answer, please write it in an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, as we draw to the end of this week's show, let's join together in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for those people who put themselves in harm's way, whatever their motives, to stand for the council, for parliament, for devolved assemblies, to be a mayor or a police and crime commissioner. Um, and we thank you for those who've been elected. We pray you give them real wisdom uh, and guidance and that they would govern in ways which please and honour you and which serve the people. But we especially want to lift up to you all those who've lost, particularly those who lost a seat that they previously held and whose lives have therefore been deeply affected by the results over the last few days. We hold them up to you as people that you love. We hold them up to you as people who you care for. And we ask that your tenderness towards them will be revealed towards them, that they will be strengthened and sustained and provided for, and that you would um, mend the brokenhearted. Um, and we thank you that you care for us in every single corner of our lives. Every hair of our head is numbered. Every woe that we face is not just registered by you, but it affects you and you deeply care for all of us in every corner of our lives. And Lord, we want to pray in particular for Scotland. We thank you for Murdo Fraser. We thank you for Kate Forbes. We thank you for Christians serving in the Scottish Parliament and in Scottish politics as a whole. And this most potentially divisive issue, we pray that there would be an absence of hostility, that the tone of the debate would be kind and generous, that Christian politicians of, of all kinds and on both sides of the debate would set a great example um, by the, uh, the loving nature of the uh, tone of the debate that they engage with, that you make sure that Scotland's future is the right one, um, that you guide the country, um, both the United Kingdom as a whole and Scotland in particular, in the right direction, and that you'd make sure that wise choices are made. And we lift all these prayers up to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we come to the end of our time together, I'm so grateful to you for listening. Um, join us next week when we'll have another great guest. I'm Tim Farron. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.
You can listen to the podcast of this program online by searching for A Mucky Business. Don't forget, if you have any questions you'd like to put to Tim in a future show, email farron at premier.org.uk.